Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today is episode 99, nearly at 100. Um, and today I have um, uh, Dr. Joe Eisenman from USA Football, amongst others. I'll let him introduce himself to you in a minute. Now, th- this is an important episode to me um, for several reasons. The main one being I'm almost at the end of what is my um, my research. I promised myself I would do 100 episodes before I submit my um, doctoral thesis, which is very much aligned to the topic we're going to talk about today. Um, but I will be um, uh, the host and the student, and my guest will be the expert. I will try and contain myself from my enthusiasm for this topic. But today we're going to get into um, this whole concept that I'm really passionate about, which is um, sort of a translational sports science concept. I'm always referring to this idea of science to practice, um, and I'm very much looking forward to getting into this. But just to introduce my my guest today, um, Joe, um, perhaps you could just let everyone know who you are and, and what you're up to. Yeah, I mean, before that, I just want to thank you for having me on uh, the podcast. And this is a great opportunity. I've been following your work, as again, you mentioned, you know, this is really what you're doing you're sinking your teeth into this topic so i'm Mm. excited to have a conversation with you in the next 30 40 minutes or so um so yeah my background uh maybe i'll start with where i'm at right now and then how i got here which actually really plays into this topic as well uh so as of february 1st um i've been at usa football i'm the director of high performance and education Uh, My primary duties here are to oversee uh, the development and the implementation of a long-term athlete development program around the sport of American football, uh, and then also to uh, oversee aspects of coach education. So uh, how I got here probably starts back in my childhood. Um, I was an avid youth sports person, Um, you know, couldn't wait to get out of school and go play ball that kind of carried forward with me uh, into uh, the college setting. I played collegiate athletics. Um, I I played baseball and then I played American football for one year um, in college uh, studying um, physical education, but much more with a, you know, exercise physiology, biology focus Um, from there sort of pursuing my graduate work. and it was during my, my graduate work that I really became interested in the young athlete. So uh, to go forward with my PhD, I wanted to study with, you know, the best and the brightest in that area. So I sought out to study with uh, Professor Bob Molina, um, who if you do work in pediatric exercise science, you're going to be very well aware of who that is. Um, if not, uh, this is a man who's published, I believe, nearly 500 academic papers now and has literally written a book on uh, growth, maturation, and physical activity. Um, so during my PhD studies was, you know, late ni- uh, 1990s, uh, at the time when, you know, the pediatric obesity epidemic was really coming onto the stage. So I started, uh, um, I started my work in that area and, you know, upon graduation went into uh, university. Um, 
and I was at major university, so I was kind of pigeonholed, so to speak, uh, of going after you know major grant funding related to childhood obesity. Um, but I've always had this passion for youth sports and kind of did hobby research, if you will, on, on youth sports. And I was actually a youth sports coach as well. So um, I did that, you know, probably up until 2010, 2012-ish. You know, I don't know if it was a midlife crisis or not, but uh, <laughs> around the age of 40, I uh, decided I needed to go back to my passion. And uh, my my... My passion again is you know youth sports and the development of the young athletes. So, I I founded and I directed what's called um, Spartan Performance. It's a youth sport performance training center and, and research center on the campus of Michigan State University, where you know I was basically a scholar practitioner. I was doing research in the area, but I was also boots on the ground, training young athletes and also communicating with coaches on a daily basis. And that's where this whole notion of bridging the gap, you know, from science to practice, um, you know, comes about. And it's, you know, very important that we take these scientific principles and these new findings in science and what we know about youth sports and, and sports training um, and be able to apply that into the field and work alongside coaches and, and athletes to make sure that they, you know, have a, have a great experience that's uh, well-founded on those scientific principles. Um, so yeah, I was at Michigan State University at Spartan Performance for, you know, about four years or so, and then made this decision to come on to a national governing body, um, where again, I'm, you know, boots on the ground, um, doing implementation, doing actionable research with youth football coaches, high school football coaches, and young athletes in the sport of American football. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting because, and we were just talking a bit offline there, um, where you've you made this comment about where we have similar backgrounds. Um, and, and it's sort of a mirror effect because uh, although we're um, sort of meeting in the middle now, um, you know, my background, which I won't spend too much time on now because a lot of listeners know much about it, but um, was sort of the opposite, was started life as a, you know, pretty badly educated um, uh, personal trainer, um, you know, getting into all sorts of stuff and then making loads of mistakes or, um, you know, being corrected one way or the other by other people and, and through that path, you know, sort of started to go onwards and upwards um, to becoming a practitioner and then, and then in my case, eventually, as, you know, a, a practitioner who's now doing um, some scholar you know, I'm, I have some publications and working on it now and, and so on. But, but either way, we, we've come at the same sort of intersection, which is very interesting. Yes. Um, so so the, the, this gap um, is quite profound. But, but before we get into that, because that is kind of the point of this and why we need to understand what, what you know, the importance of, of sort of translational science in our field, which, which is pretty new really to sports science, um, I thought I would uh, just quickly throw in a, a topic or a, an, an overview of a, of a word which I think is important, mainly because it's the focus of my own um, thesis and why I feel sports science practitioners need to be um, aware of this, is, is this concept of, of an epistemology. And I'll just quickly define it for the listeners because I think this is important because it will be sort of illustrate the uh, relevance of why we're going to have this conversation. So epistemology it's a scary sounding word, but it is the study of the nature and scope of knowledge 
and justified belief. Um, and, and, and its basic sort of approach is to analyze the nature of knowledge and how it relates to similar notions, such as truth, belief, and justification. Um, and it also deals with, with the means of production of knowledge, as well as skepticism about different knowledge claims. Um, now, I, I, you know, I mean, it's it, it, a big thing for people to even think about this concept, um, because essentially it, it is about, you know, having issues to do with the creation and dissemination of knowledge um, in specific areas of inquiry, such as expert performance, um, in the context of myself in for my professional doctorate that I'm doing, um, but for others in our profession, such as what we're attempting to do here. And the reason, the reason why I think this is important, and I've explored this in previous podcasts, is people like to throw around this word evidence-based all the time. And I've debated that a lot, and I prefer the word evidence-informed, but the reason why I'm mentioning this is because um, no one's really... Um, defining to us what actually constitutes evidence and, and, in, and in what areas of context is this evidence even coming from and relevant to. And this is where translational um, science comes in. And um, I, you know, I cannot, I cannot underemphasize, sorry, overemphasize enough the importance of this because as practitioners, we, you know, we, we're dealing with knowledge. Um, all the interventions we use, whether we're nutritionists or S&C coaches, we have strategies which are essentially tools in a toolbox. And, and we can be very um, obsessed with, with the sciencey stuff, but we don't necessarily interrogate the usefulness or the relevance of that knowledge as it applies to the real world context of its application. And that's where this translational stuff comes in. So anyway, um, to, to stop me from blabbing on here, Joey, could you... Just quickly give us an overview then, um, because we're, we're going to talk a bit about this paper that literally just came out in the ACSM translational journal, which is the translational gap between laboratory and playing field, new era to solve old problems in sports science. I'll link to this in the, in the podcast notes. Um, but why, why did this paper even come out? Um, and, and maybe even, you know, how come there's even a journal by ACSM on this topic? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just going to go back to your great explanation of uh, epistemology again. And my wife is a mathematics educator, and she talks about epistemology all the time. And, you know, she's always uh, poked fun at me about, you know, being a quantitative scientist. She does qualitative work. And, you know, I think that quantitative work is the be-all, end-all. Um, and, of course, it's not. Um, I mean, much more appreciative of qualitative right now, but she always talks about big truth. She's always like, Joe, you always talk about things in, a, in one of your papers, like it's the big T truth mm. that you're alluding to with the evidence, like what is, what is evidence and what is knowledge and how do we generate that? Um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, how this paper came about, it was, it was really uh, based on a lot of conversations that I had with um, with myself, number one, about who I am and what I'm doing, you know, what led me to kind of change career path a little bit from going from the ivory tower more towards a, a scholar practitioner kind of model and the importance of, you know, we have a lot of knowledge in the universe. Uh, 
it was John Horgan, I think, that wrote the book, The End of Science. Mm -hmm. about, we've solved all the big problems. Um, and another, another book, um, you know, that I think that's coming to my mind right now that kind of helped shape my ideas about this paper is Edward O. Wilson, Consilience, The Unity of Knowledge. So again, we have, we have a lot of research. A lot of research has been done. We, you know, we know children should be physically active. We know that the strength and conditioning program produces improvements in speed. Uh, we know the acquisition of fundamental movement skills is a prerequisite um, for advanced sports skills. Um, you know, and, and right now with my work on long-term athlete development, we have the papers. We have the models on paper. We need to implement it right we need to take actionable steps and that also means the scientists need to you know walk down the road walk across the bridge meet all the other people on the integrated sports performance team and also the coaches and the athletes and they need to be able to translate this knowledge to them so again these athletes are protected from injury athletes reduce the risk of uh, the risk of injury and they can enhance their performance based on best practice of what we know from you know laboratory work um, and also you know some field work um, so and then again talking to you know colleagues in strength and conditioning and having battled this problem on a daily basis because those strength and conditioning coaches are on the front lines and having to communicate with sport coaches and again, in the U.S., we have this culture of a coach-centric environment where the head sport coach is, is the be-all, end-all. The buck stops there. Um, you know, they're, they're making decisions about conditioning. They're making decisions about the strength program. They're sometimes dictating to strength and conditioning coaches. My guys are out of shape. They're going to lift four days a week, you know, even though they have no basis and background in it. Um, so there, there, there was, there was part of that that led, led to the paper as well. And then, you know, of course, David Bishop and Caroline Finch. You know, you read the paper, and those two are cited throughout the paper. And I was just inspired by that work. Hmm. Um, and then, and then again, I think, you know, probably six months or so previous to when I started writing um, this, Mike Stone, uh, you know, legendary, you know, strength and conditioning scholar practitioner at East Tennessee State University, you know, came out with this paper, uh, you know, about bridging the gap and the difficulties that strength and conditioning and sports science folks have with U.S. sport coaches. So it was really a culmination of all that that led to the paper. Um, so I'm not really sure that there's an original idea in the paper. I mean, I'm going to confess to that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good data synthesizer and I'm a, I'm a good knowledge broker. So I wanted to gather all those resources and just kind of reframe it and get it back on you know, the minds of people. Yeah, I mean, well, I think to, to some extent, most of us are knowledge brokers one way or the other. Um, even sadly, when you think you've come up with something novel, unfortunately, somebody somewhere probably did actually come up with that idea and they either did disseminate it or it's one of those things that didn't go into the journal of negative findings <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot of people reinventing wheels not knowing that the wheel was invented at some point um but you you just mentioned actually something that i i uh, find fascinating um which which was um comes from a paper that had uh, influenced me 
um, which you obviously have read, which was Michael Stone, William Sands, and Jenny McNeil. Um, it's a reasonably old paper, but that doesn't mean it's not um, relevant to this day, which is a 2005 um, paper in perceptual and motor skills. You know, a lot of people haven't even heard of that journal, but this for me was one of the most important papers I ever read, which was um, plaudits and pitfalls in studying elite athletes. And I mean, basically, um, you know, this sort of comes out from this issue, and I come across this a lot, um, where, um, you know, we're being encouraged to conduct um, quantitative research, um, and ultimately we, we want to, you know, we, we want to generalize our findings. Um, so we might do that on... The, the, you know the the participants we can sample um, pragmatically, so that is students or local college athletes or whatever but but what if the context of application is an Olympic athlete um, if for example um, we 're conducting research to understand um, you know uh, um, heptathlon for example do we do we assess our college heptathletes um, you know, um, deduce what we deduce from that and then generalize that to Jessica Ennis, for example, who ultimately is an outlier. Um, she's not going to be the same as a college athlete. So there's a problem with the translation of, of that knowledge from one area to another. So that paper is very much about this idea um, that we need to bring on board alternative methods of analysis. That, and you mentioned qualitative, I'm a massive believer in qualitative um, data um, because we leave, we leave this stuff out frequently, particularly in nutrition, which is that there's a lot of science in nutrition and yes, you can get very sciencey and mechanistic about it, but the application of nutrition has very qualitative features to it, i.e. taste, budget, um, you know, uh, religious issues, um, practical issues, uh, storage issues, uh, you, know, uh, you know, having to cook and and um, you know presentation um, I've had athletes who won't take a supplement because they don't like the look of the bottle uh, a sports drink sorry um, that's typical soccer players of course but <laughs> but anyway I think there's a lot there so um, sorry I'm um, uh, carrying on a bit here but but with regards to this translational issues particularly since you've spent a lot of time in um, uh, elite sport and in, say, college sport, for example, well, you know, in which direction do you feel the gap is sort of opening or closing, or do you feel it's just a chasm the whole way through? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to answer that question, but another thing I want to talk about mm. um, is this idea of quality improvement study and or a living lab because I think it's pertinent to this item as well. But in terms of the gap, um, you know, again, we, we can all point fingers. And I think this is what you mean by closing the gap, but you know, there's several members of this team, if you will, like I like to call it an integrated sports performance team, you know, goes all the way from the researchers to the applied sports scientist. Um, those members on the high performance team, like the physicians and physiotherapists and registered dietitians, strength and conditioning coaches, sports psychologists. And then we cross this major barrier um, to the coach and the athlete. 
again, at least in the, at least in the United States, you know, I've, I've heard this a bit from, you know, other countries, but very predominant here in the United States where we have this huge gap, this huge divide between coach and then those other members of the sports science team or integrated sports performance team. And again, we can point fingers, you know, across that barrier. Um, but again, that's, that's not helping us solve the problem now, is it? Nice. So, you know, there's, there's gotta be a little bit of negotiation that's done, um, you know, at, at both levels. And also I think this, this also gets down to a leadership aspect as well. So if we want to truly have integrated sports performance teams and we truly want to bridge the gap between science and practice, we have leaders of these organizations whether they be front office people or at a university setting, it's an athletic director. Um, they have to lead and they have to set the tone to how the athletics program is going to be carried out and the value of sports science uh, that is going to be brought to the athletic field. And so making sure we may, you know, change coaching mindset um, and how they're accepting of the scientific uh, you know, principles or studies and the expertise of those sports science people and being able to help them uh, improve the athletic performance of the athletes. I mean, we're all, we're all in it for the same reasons, right? Mm. I, I, have a, I have a great colleague who, you know, was vital in me thinking through this paper. Uh, his name is Tim Red Wakem. He's a director of uh, Olympic sports strength and conditioning at Michigan State. And he, he uses this analogy about, you know, we both want the orange. We, we both want the orange. I want the Ryan and he wants the juice. But we never, we never communicated effectively about it. We never negotiated about what we wanted. So I, I think it's a kind of a nice analogy to think about, you know, the athlete and keeping the athlete healthy and performing at a high level is the orange. Like what part of it do we want, you know, from a sport science or from a coaching perspective? Yeah, no, I, 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 I've had a similar conversation with someone the other day and um, a, a sort of a similar analogy was about, you know, people are talking about stuff. So they use, they use language science, uh, fancy words, whatever, but it's a form of language and they're communicating and, just like when we go on holiday, you know, we've got people from different countries who will meet in the middle using the language of English, um, but, but they've all got different interpretations and understandings of what words mean, don't mean, and pronunciations and so on. So a lot of this is a bit like fruit. Um, um, it, you know, it's a fruit thing. Um, so actually, you've got someone who's talking about apples and someone who's talking about oranges. Um, um, and when they meet in the middle, they realize they're talking about fruit. So they think that, that you know, what they have in common is ultimately, um, you know, uh, they're, on, they're, they're on the same side. They're agreeing on the same thing. But no, it is literally like the phrase, it's apples and oranges. Therefore, there's a big um, uh, gap, which, like the movie, um, gets lost in translation. And that, that's why I think this is important, because simply being aware of things... Um, is important. I mean, there's a whole other area which we won't go into today, but it's about ignorance and then ignorance of ignorance, which is um, 
another big word here is you've got epistemologies of ignorance. But a lot of people don't realize, or they, they don't realize they're ignorant of something. And then when you've got two <laughs> ignorant people having a conversation about something, it becomes a bit of a nightmare, hence the apples and oranges um, uh, perspective of, 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 of fruit. But anyway, before I, uh, people think I've completely lost it, um, if, I bring, if I bring this back to this concept of a gap, um, Joe, um, you know, when we use the word gap, it kind of makes us think of, of like, you know, a gap in the road or um, a gap between buildings or, um, you know, but, but, but the gap is actually quite complex when we're talking about translational things, translational medicine, translational sports science. Perhaps you could help elucidate what, what we actually mean by this, this gap, what, you know, because we're using bridging the gap, science, the science gap. But what, what actually is the gap? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think I want to use, you know, the framework that, you know, translational medicine is used, you know, and they talk about translational gaps, you know, T1, T2, and T3. You know, there's these barriers between the different steps of the process because there's several steps in the process as well, right? Mm. So, you know, like in, in, in the paper, you know, I synthesize, you know, four different models. You know, one is just a, our, our typical translational model of research where we go from the basic science aspect to the clinician who's treating patients. And then we have to hop over another translational barrier and that's getting it from clinical practice into public health. Um, and then in sports science, it's kind of the same framework, right? We go from the laboratory and basic science to whole body scientists, uh, to the applied sports scientists. Then we have to cross this another translational gap to, you know, the integrated sports performance team, you know, because those folks, they need to read the paper and understand it. And they need to be able to communicate with the applied researchers, so to speak, and or the basic researchers. And obviously they have to jump up, they have to jump over another gap. Um, or barrier and that's to communicate with the sports coach and then we probably have a final translational barrier and that's the sports coach getting it directly to the athlete you know so again you know there's there's several of these barriers and gaps um along this pathway and then you know bishop and finch uh you know they also outline their you know sports science sports medicine specific models um, and they go through different steps. So as we go from, you know, step to step to step, you know, eventually we want that to end up in practice in terms of how the athlete is trained and coached and, and how they perform in a game. Um, so, you know, uh, again, I think this, this gap is, you know, it's a barrier. It's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a translational gap. And, yeah, that translation could take on, a lot of different contexts can it it could it can be it could be for several it could be for several different reasons um and again you know i, I kind of state in the paper if there's a problem there's a solution so we have to identify what these gaps are um and it's one thing to identify them and you know point the finger and say oh yeah that's a problem but let's try to find solutions for it as well so that we can we we can we can narrow that gap or what we actually want to do is we want to eliminate it, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, what we're, what we're, what we're looking, what we're looking for is a utopia, a utopia of an, in a truly integrated sports performance team that consists of multiple members, all with a specific expertise, 
all of these members who who respect each other, they trust their expertise, they're allowed to do their job, and they're all a piece of the athletic puzzle. And and when all those pieces fit together nicely and there are no more gaps, right, it's just, there's, it just fits together perfectly. Then, I mean, that's when we have true utopia in terms of how athletes are trained and coached and how they perform. Yeah, I mean, I, you you mentioned my favorite word, context. Um, I mean, that, it's such a, a crucial thing. And um, um, I mean, I won't bang on about that because anyone who's listened to most of these podcasts will know that I say it about a thousand times per episode. But um, in my own research, um, I and and I'm not the only one. Again, I'm not. I'm, I'm just reinventing the wheel, really. But. Um, you know, I believe very much in, in contextualized research um, because it produces what, what's referred to as socially robust knowledge. And, and the reason why that's important is because it is epistemologically different than traditional research. And by that, I mean, it, you know, this is knowledge um, that lends itself um, to application by virtue of, of um, uh, surviving the gap um, between um, science and practice, and I think that's 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 a big issue that keeps you know keeps coming up. I had um, uh, you mentioned David Bishop, um, who, who I've been very lucky to interview for this podcast uh, on another topic, but um, he kept coming up with these sorts of things uh, in terms of how we should interpret. For example, we were talking about uh, lactate, and um, um, you know we were we were taking a much more uh, applied approach to it, but um, I would have listeners listen specifically to episode 96 that I did not very long ago with um, Professor John Hurley, who you've also referenced in your paper, where we're discussing this concept of integrative exercise biology and how important it is to understand, you know, the, um, the, the you know the, the the concept of of integration as it applies not only to the body but also the world in which we live in. Um, which you've just mentioned, and and that is a major problem. Having worked myself for quite a few years in a, as a performance nutritionist or as an S and C coach in a team setting, that's a massive problem. Um, and like you say, there there are huge issues. In fact, maybe maybe if you could just quickly just to illustrate this point, because I think this is important, particularly for researchers who are producing, no doubt, exceptional quality work in the lab. You know, just mind-bogglingly brilliant mechanistic work. Um, but in terms of, of how well that bridges or survives this gap uh, between the two, it, it is worth pointing out, as you have mentioned, that a lot of coaches don't... I mean, I've literally been told to my face, I don't believe in sports science. <laughs> so, so maybe you could just quickly delve into that, because you did mention it, um, you know, the coach-centric environment. But this is critical, particularly for those that are working in any degree from high performance sport to where there's any degree of seriousness to sport where there is coaches and other other people involved um i mean what specifically is the problem there yeah this whole conversation is just culminating into uh you know this idea that i have about a translational sports scientist Mm. um i mean we 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 have different types of sports scientists don't we we have those who work in, in, in academics, you know, they're in the ivory tower, they're in their laboratory, they're doing, you know, sports science research or 
something that could perhaps in, influence sport. We have applied sports scientists who are now being, you know, uh, hired by collegiate and professional teams uh, to, you know, either run or do recovering wellness with the athletes. Um, so what, what if we have translational sports scientists? So I, I, I bring this up in the paper a little bit, but uh, it actually had me cut <laughs> part of this out, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna publish it as a as a, as a mini paper. But it, th this idea, I mean, th this translational sports scientist, he or she is a Swiss Army knife, meaning they can go into the laboratory, and they can they can do research in the laboratory. Uh, they can write and they can publish it in an academic journal, but they don't have to be a cell and molecular biologist, but they can read and understand cell and molecular biology to then, you know, make some inferences to whole body that can potentially impact the athlete. But the, 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 the thing about this individual as well is their boots on the ground and they're doing applied sports science. They, they're doing the GPS monitoring. They're doing recovery and wellness monitoring. They're running recovery sessions. And again, they continually read the, the, the research on integrative sports performance from a variety of areas, nutrition, sports psychology, exercise, physiology, biomechanics, and they continue to integrate it into you know, the work of this integrated sports performance team, whether it be the registered dietitian, the sports psychologist. And they're also making assessments of these athletes at the same time in what I like to call a living laboratory. I mean, you mentioned, you know, working with elite athletes and sometimes it's an N of one. What's wrong with an N of one? Medicine has been doing case studies for centuries to learn about rare, rare diseases. Well, we have a rare breed of athlete once in a while as well, don't we? They're all unique. I mean, there's the principle of indi individuality, right? Mm. So, so why, why can't we use this translational sports scientist across the spectrum of science from laboratory all the way out to the field where they are continually doing their own research via their assessments, doing statistical analysis on the data that they collect because all of these major college and pro organizations, you know, they're doing assessments on the athletes, you know, but what's, what's really being done with that information in house, you know, to, to improve the strength and conditioning practices and the performance of the athlete. But obviously the coach has to be involved as well. And again, sometimes we forget that the coach is a scientist as well. And I say that because what's the first step of the scientific process? Observation. They make observations all the time, right? They can tell you about this athlete and that athlete. So they can be, they can be part of our, our research team, our sports science team, if you will, just like in, in public health. In public health, we have community participatory research where if we're trying to solve a public health problem, let's just take obesity, for example. We go into the community, we find community members who help us frame the research and again i'm going to bring up your favorite word again context right they're providing context because we have the ivory tower people who they want to go into this community and do an obesity intervention but they have no context of that community in the day-to-day -day lives of the people in that community and what may or may not work you know they're taking 
they're taking best practice from all the academic research journals about obesity interventions and they're trying to stick it in certain communities without without inter, without getting information from the people who live there on a day-to-day basis i mean again let's look at the parallel in athletics because i think it's very similar community participatory research the coach and the athletes are there day in and day out let's listen to them so again this translational sports scientist is a jack of all trades is a swiss army knife has incredible breadth of skills and experiences they can go to the research laboratory and be comfortable they can go to the locker room be comfortable they can go to the playing field be comfortable they can go to the coach's office and be comfortable they can go to the front office boardroom and be comfortable as well and in part when i say comfortable i mean comfortable translating and explaining and effectively communicating the importance of scientific principles studies and findings to the enhancement of the athletic experience completely agree you know it's a damn difficult thing to do um in fact i mean i you know i'd like to think that that's something that i'm attempting to do and i realize it's taken me a very long time to even get to a point where i'm halfway competent at this stuff um so when you think about what's necessary to achieve that it 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 i think it I think it's fascinating because the, the various credentials, if you like, characteristics, both in terms of skills and education and so on, in someone who's able to, to do this translation is, I mean, it's quite serious. I mean, you've actually, um, in your paper, you've got, um, in figure two, you've got this overview of knowledge management and transfer. I really like the way that this has been put together. And, um, where you describe a lot of this issue where, I mean, we are talking about, you know, quality assurance and, 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 the, and this concept of, of translation, which involves a number of stakeholders. There's a number of people involved in this. Um, you know, the, someone's ability to critically read and interpret the knowledge is, is important, but they also need to understand the context in which that translation needs to be delivered. And it makes me think of... Um, Professional translators who are in, you know, like United Nations or um, very important business meetings, the the risks in translating it into from one context into the wrong context could have profound damaging impacts upon how that knowledge is received and, and acted upon. And and so so we have the same here. And and um, I did a little delving into this, and there are there are significant requirements to become a professional translator in those scenarios you, you it's not just a question of being able to speak the language which is akin to a google translation you don't just cut and paste information um, you, you're involved in that process and that's i i think you're absolutely right i think you need to have knowledge and understanding at a reasonably decent level at the absolute minimum of of all the contexts really um, and yet we don't see this out there. We, 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 see, we see, you know, people I- involved in this process, but there's massive gaps. So I guess that's where the gap is. It's not necessarily that the, the quality knowledge has the gap. It's just the translation of it. And, and, and it's a bumpy road. Um, have you been to London, Joe? Yes, I have. So on the, uh, on the London Underground, um, the, the, one of the iconic signs that you see is mind the gap. 
<laughs> and I think that's kind of it. The train of knowledge is going from one place to another. There's all sorts of people getting on and off and they're adding and taking away lots of information. But one should always be mindful of that gap. Yeah, Otherwise, absolutely. somebody gets thrown under the train, don't they? And um, yeah. horrible things can happen. Yeah, I, uh, I, I just want to interject really quick, mm. you know, about this translational, you know, sports scientists, because again, they are Swiss Army knife. But I think it also goes, uh, it, it speaks to the point about how we prepare these people. I mean, our educational system right now is not really set up to train and educate these individuals. So I think there needs to be a little bit of a, of a, of a shift in, in how these people are trained and educated. And I mean, there aren't a lot of universities, at least in the United States, that are set up in this manner. Hmm. Um, you know, so obviously there's, there's a wealth of content knowledge that has to be gained, but equally important is the practical experience. And again, you know, this person has to have laboratory skills, has to have, you know, probably strength and conditioning skills. Um, has to have the have great data management and data analytic skills and obviously the most important part is this person has to be an incredibly effective communicator yeah yeah well of course what we're talking about here is uh the difference between disciplinary and transdisciplinary um um, in fact there's this whole uh it's worth just mentioning this briefly i know we don't have a whole lot of time left um um, but th there was a very important book um, that came out um, in 1994, I think it was, by Gibbons and colleagues. And there's some similar stuff written by people like Bohm, Irvin and Martin and so on. But it, it was sort of dubbed the new production of knowledge, where there was this differentiation between what's called mode one and mode two knowledge. Um, and that's what I mean by, by this sort of um, disciplinary, tra transdisciplinary gap. Um, mode, mode one traditional knowledge, you know, it's in the lab, it's, it's in the ivory tower, this stuff comes from. Whereas, you know, sort of newer forms of knowledge that subscribe to what's called mode two takes into account this, this transdisciplinary stuff. So rather than being lab-based, it might be work-based, i.e. Um, research done within the sports science department at the football club or at the rugby club or, or whatever. Um, it, it does yield different information and there's, you know, there's this, there's a difference between the academic context and the context of its application. As I said, there's a disciplinary approach, there's transdisciplinary. Some of it's, uh, the old stuff is pretty homogenous, whereas the newer stuff sh should be more heterogeneous, really. Um, and often in mode one, it's very autonomous, you know, you get a, a, a researcher or, you know, it's very focused on one narrow field of inquiry. Um, mode two can be much more uh, sort of socially accountable, i.e., to the target of where this is this is going. Um, and and I guess a lot of what we're talking about, Joe, is about quality control. Um, in in sort of more traditional fields, you know, the quality control. I mean, this is a complex topic, obviously, but part of this will get to the point of when it goes to publication. You've got blind peer review. It's entirely possible that the person who submitted that paper is more knowledgeable than the person reviewing it that isn't how it should be but that can often be the way it is whereas i guess in in this we're talking about different ways of, of controlling the quality of that knowledge um i mean maybe we could just quickly talk about that because in your paper you talk a lot about obstacles and i think that this is this is important and, and at the beginning of this podcast i didn't mention it you know 
it is important to understand this issue of ignorance and ignorance of ignorance, um, but also the, the value of negative knowledge. Um, and negative knowledge is, is that thing that, you know, if, if, if someone tried something and it didn't work, but they kept it quiet, that doesn't help the bigger picture because chances are someone else is going to try it only to find the same thing and therefore you're not moving forwards. So, you know, that's why I feel that, you know, this, this whole thing needs to change as we're, as we're discussing. So the obstacles, I know we've kind of touched upon it quickly, but um, this is clearly is a big issue. Uh, you know, why, why is being aware of obstacles and trying to find solutions to these obstacles so important? Well, I mean, obviously, if we want this to work, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned this a bit earlier is mm. if there's problems, there's solutions, right? Mm. So, I mean, we obviously know that there's obstacles. Uh, there's obstacles with the scientists. There's obstacles with the practitioners. There's obstacles, you know, with the coaches and the athletes. So, you know, we, we need to know what these obstacles are. And, and, and again, you know, the, this is general. And now you talk about the specificity of it, you know, think about your own organization. And if you're trying to establish, you know, a nice model of science to practice, being able to identify where those obstacles are um, and then trying to find solutions, you know? So again, in that section of the paper, it's, you know, obstacles or problems, but then there's <laughs> right after that, it's, if there's a problem, there's a solution. So I list out, you know, just bullet point out, you know, several different solutions and not say those are all the solutions. Um, but again, at least it's a start for people to start talking about like, okay, uh, we have these obstacles within our organization in terms of bridging the gap and getting science into, into practice. Let's identify where these problems are and, you know, here, here's some possible solutions. So let's look, let's work, work toward a better model towards an integrated sports performance or a translational sports science um, type of model. Yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously a massive chasm of, I mean, we could go on for hours, obviously, but the, I, I think what makes this particularly interesting to me is the different, you know, is, is sort of the, almost the, the sort of the controlled idealism of, of what we see in the lab compared to you know, the, um, well, like Donald Schoen, you know, he, he talks about the swampy lowlands, you know, the, the, uh, the, the trenches of, of, of practice, the, the chaos, the reality. Um, so translational scientist or a translational practitioner, having that skill is important because it's that ability to think on your feet and solve problems, which at the core of I guess what differentiates someone from being okay or, you know, basically um, adept at what they do to being a real expert is that ability to solve problems, isn't it? No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, and, and again, I think a, a big thing for, you know, the sport science, the strength and conditioning, uh, the sport performance uh, individual is having a really good understanding about, that sport and what happens day to day uh, for the athlete and for the coaches. And I think too often, you know, we're, we're trained as sports scientists and we, we have more of a academic edge to us, so to speak. And we, we don't fully understand what it's like to be boots on the ground uh, coach 
and what those coaches are going through on a day-to-day basis and what they're thinking and, and, and also for the athlete as well. So again, I think, uh, you know, not to say, you know, to be one of these translational sports scientists or be on the sports performance team that you have had to have been, you know, uh, an athlete in, in, in that sport nor a coach in that sport. Although I think, I think that becomes very important. I think if you are, have been a sports coach within that specific sport and or an athlete in that specific sport, I, I just feel that you get it a lot more because you have lived that day to day. Um, but you know, and if you haven't, you at least need to be around that environment and be comfortable because the other thing, a lot of this hinges upon trust, doesn't it? That sport, that sport coach and that athlete, they have to trust you as the sports scientist. They can pick up very quickly. Yeah. This guy wears a lab coat all the time and he has no idea how to handle himself out here on the pitch. They can, they can sense that right away. So they start losing a little bit of trust perhaps. So I think the more that you can integrate yourself as well into that sporting environment, the better, you know, you're going to be accepted as well. So, so Joe, that is exactly why I'm transfixed on this concept of epistemology, because as I mentioned earlier, it, 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 you know, it is that nature and scope of knowledge, i.e. the science and justified belief. And like I said, that, that is, so important because this stuff the effectiveness of of it you know having the impact that we want it to relates heavily um to similar notions such as like you say truth belief justification and these are humanistic things that that people deal with and wrestle with that ultimately influences the successful translation of of that science to practice and without that knowledge it you know well you know it goes back to that ignorance issue or epistemology of ignorance um so look i i know we've only got a matter of minutes left here but it would be great just to just to quickly conclude with um um an example or two uh since we're talking about science to practice i mean do you you mentioned some in the paper do you have sort of um a, a quick quick example you could describe um, of this process, you know, that, 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 that's been successful. Yeah. I mean, this is at the forefront of what I'm doing on a daily basis now. And, you know, I'm going to go to the long-term athlete development model. Um, so again, several papers have been published on long-term athlete development. We have several nice models that are available, but they're sitting in academic journals. They're put, they're on PowerPoint slides. And what we need is we need, we need action now, don't we? So uh, it's a matter of going out into communities at the grassroots level, uh, giving a presentation to a coach or a league um, or a group of coaches within that league, convincing them that this is a good way to develop healthy young athletes uh, in a developmentally appropriate manner, getting them to buy in. Once they buy in, showing them how to execute uh, a long-term athlete development uh, program and then monitor and then monitoring them as well to make sure I mean there's a fidelity aspect of it as well right mm-hmm. so so again I mean I'm using this example but we can use a lot of different examples I mean from nutrition right like mm-hmm. we know about carbohydrate loading so on and so forth but 
you know, that's, that's in a paper. And then when it gets put out into practice, what's the fidelity of that intervention or that protocol? Is it followed the way it should be followed? Um, you know, so, you know, again, right now on a day-to-day -day basis, we're trying to implement this long-term athlete development model in American football. And, you know, it's going to take the folks who have the understanding of the science of it to go out and be boots on the ground and to interact with coaches and parents and, and young athletes and make sure that it gets uh, implemented. I mean, that's, that, that's, an, that's a whole other can of worms that we could probably talk about another time is implementation science. Absolutely. So, so again, we have basic science and, you know, laboratory kind of science, but there's this whole notion of implementation science as well. And that's a lot of the work that Caroline Finch has been doing, which is outstanding with regards to injury prevention. You know, we talk about, you know, the FIFA 11 dynamic warm-up for reducing injury. I think they just had a paper came, come out that showed, you know, most people who say that they're doing FIFA are really only doing one or two of the exercises correctly. Yeah, that is a can of worms. <laughs> That's a huge one because we get that in nutrition all the time. You've, you know, we, people go on, going on about low carb, high fat diets and all that stuff. And actually, someone thinks they're doing a low carb diet, and actually, it's only a moderate carb diet. Or people think they have a high protein diet, but that's my idea of a low protein diet. I think um, that's where the translation is important. Um, Absolutely. Um, well, look. Um, I obviously we could go on for hours about this and I just you know we, all we can do is open this can of worms and at least we're helping people understand that it's a can and it's got worms in it <laughs> um, but um, it would be good to get you back on at some point where we can talk some more about some different angles here I think there's some some uh, connected topics that might be worth getting into at another time but I know you're busy. Uh, you've got an appointment to go to. I've, I've also got to go. Um, but thank you very much, Joe. Uh, I know the listeners and, and I, of course, are very, very, very pleased and um, uh, lucky to have you share your time and knowledge with us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on the show. Again, I, I agree. I could, we could probably sit here and do a four-hour podcast. Uh, so it, I, I'd, I'd welcome to be on again. And, you know, I've, yeah. been, I've, been follow, I've been following your work and, you know, thank you. Congratulations on what you've been doing, and obviously we have a lot of uh, you know synergies. So I'm sure that we're going to be. No, that'll be good. Well, my next step is to success is to submit in a few weeks, and uh, hopefully, and then uh, and pass my viva, and then okay. and then um, and then I can um, and then move on to. Uh, well, I probably won't move on to another thing because I'm so obsessed by this stuff. But um, <laughs> um, I, uh, I I do look forward to following up with you soon. Um, so thank you very very much. Um, for, for uh, everyone, obviously, uh, there's a bunch of uh, previous episodes you can catch up on, um, as well as our other articles, info videos, all the tools of knowledge translation that specifically approach and focus on the gap between science and practice um, at guruperformance.com, as well, of course, our more serious longer-term educational programs in performance nutrition. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon.